Hello, fabulous listeners. Thanks for tuning in to All Bodies Outside. This is your host, Dr. Brian Peterson. This episode's guest is Dr. Lauren Mullenbach, who is a professor of geography and environmental sustainability at the University of Oklahoma. Her research focuses on environmental justice issues related to urban land use. Currently, she's working on several research projects that focus on assessing public opinions of parks and homelessness, evaluating environmental injustices and the development of a new park, identifying environmental justice implications and best practices of urban forestry programs, and better understanding connections between climate adaptation plans, gentrification, and health equity. Dr. Mollenbach, it's a pleasure to have you on Old Bodies Outside. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so one of your esteemed colleagues recommended that you be on the show. Dr. Jeff Rose sent me an email and said, oh, you should invite Dr. Laura Mullenbach to be on the show. So, so grateful that you're here. Yeah, Jeff Rose is great. Yeah, yeah. Are you two working together on uh, public opinions of parks and homelessness? We sure are. Um, nice. Yeah, we, we've, been, we've been writing a paper slowly over the past couple of years. Yeah, yeah. Well, Jeff is uh, wonderful. I got to, I was, a, I did my master's at the University of Utah and he came in on the tail end of my master's and uh, he was immediately just such a wonderful impact to the department and wonderful human being. And uh, Jeff's just, just a great guy all around. Definitely. Yeah. Well, let's get this conversation started. And so one of the things I first wanted to open up with is I wanted to hear about how you got into researching equitable urban greening. Great question. I was in my master's program and I came into that program, a nature loving outdoors obsessed person and only wanted to research other people who also love nature and the outdoors and how to better connect them to the outdoors and how to better serve them with our parks and our protected areas and our environmental education and all of these things. And it wasn't until I was in a uh, seminar class toward the tail end of my master's degree when I read a paper that was about urban trees and the urban tree canopy and how not every resident of a certain city neighborhood wanted trees in their neighborhood. Um, that made them fearful. They didn't like that the branches fell on the sidewalk and blocked their wheelchairs. They didn't like all of these things. And it was, believe it or not, my first time academically encountering a group of people who didn't love nature as much as I did. Um, I mean, anecdotally, you know that not everyone is an outdoors person, but I was just in this echo chamber of other people who value nature and love being outside and only want to see more of it in our cities and all of these things. And so I love that paper and really connected with it because it really opened my eyes. And then a friend, because I liked that paper so much, sent me a different one that introduced me to the idea of gentrification that was caused by a new park being built. And that blew my mind so much that I changed the direction that my PhD was going to go in. So when I was looking at programs, I was trying to find advisors who also study city parks and gentrification and this idea of communities evolving as a result of renovations or new parks being built. So that's that's where I ended up. And then I also really it connected with the social justice as aspect of studying people who are made vulnerable by society's processes. 
Yeah, I think that's a really important point that you brought up that a lot of us get caught up in this echo chamber of like, I love I love nature and I love parks, but there's not thinking about all these different cultural imaginaries, all these different subtle differences that of way people interact with parks, um, what they value in parks. Um, and so I think that's really important, um, especially for research to get outside of our echo chambers, which, you know, happens to all of us, we're human. Um, but exploring those differences is always positive. Um, and I want to ask you real quick, the, um, the friend that sent you the, the article about um, a park being built and gentrification, was that Brandon Harris? No, I didn't meet oh. Brandon until I was about halfway through my PhD. Okay, okay. I studied with him. Oh, I wouldn't say I studied with him. He was in my program, but we studied very different things. Um, but Brandon's wonderful. Um, I hear he's up to great stuff. Mm -hmm. He's a great person. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's transition to um, just hearing what types of projects you currently have going on. Yeah, I've got several projects at different stages going on right now. Um, I was listening to your introduction and realizing that my website probably needs to be updated a little bit. Um, there is a project that you mentioned that got sidelined because of COVID, um, but I can talk about uh, all of the other ones that I have going on. So you mentioned first the one about parks and homelessness, and I know you just interviewed Jeff Rose recently, um, and so he talked about that in a he's. I'm sure much more detail than I'm going to talk about my project, but what we're doing there is first we sent out a survey to uh, about 900 um, randomly selected Americans throughout the country. And this was a general public opinion survey of how people feel about homelessness as an issue, generally speaking. So what is people's ideology toward homelessness? And, you know, do they feel that it's something that society is responsible for fixing? Do they feel that it is something individuals are responsible for fixing? Um, and then we also ask them about different types of solutions to homelessness. So policy-based solutions, um, very um, individual level solutions based on, you know, quick fixes. Um, and, uh, and then we ask them about whether or not they feel it's appropriate to use um, resources from local parks and recreation agencies to help solve homelessness, because so many people experiencing homelessness use parks as a temporary home, as a permanent home, spend time there during the day because they are sort of one of our last remaining truly public spaces in a lot of cities. And so they're used very frequently by people experiencing homelessness. And so we were asking people, you know, um, parks and recreation agencies are on the front lines of homelessness in a lot of places. You know, they're the ones who are responding to um, people complaining about homeless people walking up to them and asking them for money. They respond to police encounters. They are in charge of enforcing unfortunate municipal laws about sleeping in parks, things like that. And so they experience a lot of homelessness on a day-to-day -day basis, but they also represent a public service. So we were asking people, you know, how appropriate do you feel that it would be to use um, parks and recreation resources for helping solve homelessness because they could connect 
people to resources. They could um, provide specialized programming. They could allow them to sleep in parks or reside them in them in other ways. Um, there's a lot of ways that local parks and rec agencies can help figure out what to do with homelessness. Um, so we were asking people about that and um, the results are pretty interesting. Um, they, they do align with this general trend that people have become a little bit more sympathetic and compassionate toward people experiencing homelessness over time. Um, in the 90s, when people were studying homelessness a lot more often, public opinion was in a very different spot. Um, you know, it, it was not as popular for people to be so compassionate to people experiencing homelessness. It was more of a um, scourge on society, so to speak. Um, and we found that people are a little bit more compassionate these days, um, a little bit more willing to say that policy solutions are probably a better, um, a better option, a little bit more willing to say that it's not your fault if you are homeless um, and things like that. Um, so that's, that's been pretty encouraging. And then as far as um, people thinking whether or not it's appropriate to use parks and rec resources, um, we have found that most people think that it is good for parks and rec agencies to kind of help solve homelessness issues, but that when you try and siphon money away from other municipal services like police, fire, um, libraries, health department, things like that, that's when it gets a little bit trickier and people are a little bit less willing to dump more of the municipal pot of money into parks and rec to solve this issue um, if you're taking something away from another service. Um, so that's that's an interesting project. And um, we're transitioning that into a sort of community case study based project in Champaign, Illinois. So I'm working on that with Nick Pittis um, at Illinois. Nice. Um, yeah. So that's one project. Well, that's that's interesting to see. And I'm really happy to see that there's, you know, a changing of a, a trend, a little bit more compassion towards people that are experiencing homelessness. And I, it, it's such a complex topic. And that was something that, you know, Jeff, uh, Dr. Jeff Rose and I discussed on this episode. And, you know, one of the things that I always think of in my head, and, you know, I, I go backpacking a lot, not necessarily in urban spaces and whatnot, but I go backpacking, I'll get a 20 day permit, 30, 30 day permit. And I'm out sleeping out there doing that thing. And, um, you know, that's, that's okay. Uh, that's normative. But then, you know, if someone else doesn't look like a, a typical white backpacker, then, you know, they might be said, oh, you're homeless and you can't be here. And, um, mm -hmm. I think that it's great, though, going back to what I said, that that trend, people are showing more compassion and, you know, kind of thinking outside of the box and looking at all the different nuances that are associated with homelessness. There's a lot to it. Absolutely. Um, so other projects I have going on. Um, I am wrapping up a project with Dr. Lincoln Larson, who's at NC State. Uh, we have been studying. Um, uh, it's, it's a really large project with a lot of different components, but generally speaking, we're looking at urban forestry programs and um, social equity issues. And so there's a, a national uh, piece of the project where we did focus groups and a survey of people working on urban forestry in different, in different capacities. So we, um, we interviewed or, or did focus groups with people who are urban foresters or 
Sometimes they're also called municipal arborists. So people that cities hire to manage their trees that, that exist uh, on public land and in, in rights of way um, on schoolyards and um, in urban parks, things like that. Um, we did focus groups with people who work at uh, urban nature or urban tree planting specific nonprofits. So there's a lot of like greening Charlottesville or um, Million Trees LA or um, trying to think of some of the other names, uh, greening Tucson. Uh, there's, there's all these different nonprofits that exist in, in different cities around the country. And um, they're often the ones that are doing the tree planting. Um, it's not very common that the city itself is planting new trees. Um, they might if they're replacing something, but a lot of the campaigns around getting um, urban tree canopies to become larger is, is led by and totally executed by nonprofits. Um, we also have been interviewing people who work at like state agencies. So um, Oklahoma Department of uh, Wildlife Conservation, uh, Georgia Department of Natural Resources, you know, that sort of um, state level employee. And then uh, also a couple of environmental justice groups um, because we're, we have this social equity angle to our project. Uh, and what we've been asking these folks is how have you approached community engagement? How, how have you gotten um, more vulnerable or marginalized people to be engaged in decisions being made about tree planting in the actual act of tree planting in getting people to agree to trees or in why they refuse trees, um, what, what issues or struggles do you have with making your tree planting more equitable, um, things like that. And so what we've found from those conversations with people is that it is incredibly hard for um, these programs to reach social equity uh, even though they, a lot of them have that as their goal, you know, they, everyone says, oh, of course we want, you know, the low income people in our city to have more trees and receive the benefits of trees. Of course, we want to prioritize areas that are hottest in the summer um, for shade trees. Of course, we want people um, who are more marginalized to experience the benefits of this program. But what they run into is... Um, First of all, negative opinions of trees, so people not wanting them in their yard for reasons that I mentioned earlier. Um, people don't like that branches fall on their house. They don't like dealing with leaves and raking leaves. They don't want to deal with nuts and fruit dropping on the sidewalk. Um, they're fearful that people will hide behind them. Um, they just don't want them because they don't have room or that's it's, for some people it's a symbol of whiteness and sort of the white ideal of of greening um and they're also dealing with just a budgetary issue um a lot of times nonprofits or city governments have the money to plant the tree but not to maintain the tree mm. and so then maintaining the trees falls on the people who don't have the capacity to maintain the trees or don't know how to or don't want to um so a lot of times the problem is that a nonprofit will come sweeping in with all of these white ideals of urban nature. They'll 
plant a million trees and then they'll leave. And then a bunch of dead trees are a nuisance on a community, you know, two years later. Um, so that's, that's really a struggle is trying to figure out how to connect all of the different resources that exist so that a program is sustained over time. Um, people are really, uh, creative in some ways, you know, they'll connect with other cities and they'll pool their resources. They'll apply for grants, um, at the federal level or state level. Um, they'll use volunteers, they'll have friends groups. Um, they'll, uh, they'll make use of, uh, a lot of like small companies will have like a community service day. And so they'll have, you know, a local bank come out and, and help them for a day or things like that. Um, youth programs. So they, they get pretty creative. And then as for community engagement goes, a lot of them do door knocking, Facebook campaigns, things like that to try and get as many people involved as possible so that decisions aren't just being made by the white people at the nonprofit. And I'm speaking in generalities, but um, this was a national study. So there's general trends to speak of there. Um, and so that's been a really interesting project because there's a lot of aspects to tree planting that people don't think about. It's they're sort of seen as a cure-all. Um, right, right. Like for climate change, um, you know, they'll filter our air and water. Um, it'll cool our trees or it'll cool our cities down. Um, they look pretty, they connect people to nature. So they, they're seen as this sort of, um, natural resource that can solve lots of different problems at one time. Uh, and people don't think about, well, where are you planting those trees? Do those people want them? Uh, who's going to maintain them? Are they native? Um, are, are the people who live there now even going to receive the benefits of them once they finally grow to their full size in 10 or 15 or 20 years? Um, it's, it's a, it's a long-term decision that is made by short-term thinking. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, that was, that was wonderful. I've never thought about how, um, okay, let's go plant some trees. It seems like just wonderful from every angle and actually like there could be some issues. And one of the things that you mentioned was safety issues. Um, you know, like that could be, someone could perceive that their safety actually gets diminished because now there's more places for say someone to hide or you just don't see everything. And so I never thought about that. I kind of was always like, okay, yay, trees. Um, <laughs> and like, I was thinking as you're giving, you know, talking about your project, I was thinking about tree camp, the tree campus USA project. Um, and, you know, greening all types of, uh, campuses. And I guess with that campuses would have to maintain it and whatnot, but it's just looked at right away as this is a positive thing. This is awesome. It almost feels like it's, as you mentioned at the end, they're just a short-term political decision and not looking at the long-term and also not looking at all these different cultural perceptions of these trees. Yeah. I mean, trees are really symbolic, uh, in our society. They represent a lot of different things to people. We have that saying that if you're a, a hippie or an environmentalist that you are a tree hugger and so they're they're very symbolic and uh so that makes it really tricky sometimes when people um have opinions that are run counter to that dominant view of trees as solving everything yeah well that's that's great that you're doing that research that is on that broad level across the united states did you say was that 900 surveys or not across the country? Is that what you said? Um, that was the, that was the homelessness project. This was, um, 
So this was a series of focus groups. So we had, you know, hour long conversations with people, four or five of them at a time. And uh, we also sent around a survey to um, a bunch of different groups affiliated with uh, the Arbor Day Foundation because they're a, they're a partner on this project. And so they have an enormous um, reach in terms of these tree planting nonprofits and um, municipal arborists and urban foresters. Um, so they, they sent out a survey for us. And so we have a few hundred responses from that national survey, basically asking the same questions as the focus group, but of course they can't go into as much detail. Um, but we were finding a lot of the same things as, um, as in our focus groups. Um, and then there is a local component to this project. Um, it's, uh, it's been a, taken a little bit longer to get off the ground because of COVID and people filtering in and out of the project and stuff. Um, but that's going to be in Louisville, Kentucky. And it's um, revolving around this experiment that's being done. So the University of Louisville is conducting this experiment where they plant um, however, however many trees in specific neighborhoods in Louisville that have the highest amounts of air pollution. Um, so they reach a certain number of quotas of, of, of tree, trees planted per year throughout this project. And then they've been regularly um, assessing air quality. And then also um, for the participants in the study, they are getting biological information from them. So like asthma rates, um, blood pressure, things like that, because, you know, trees and nature are associated with better health conditions. So if we plant trees in these vulnerable neighborhoods that have high air pollution, um, you know, if we improve their air quality by planting trees, what's going to happen to their health, you know, one, five, 10 years later. Um, and so we are sort of an auxiliary project related to that. And we've been studying the social equity side. Um, because this is one of those studies where the, the intentions are really, really good and they're going to do really nice things for this area of Louisville. But at the same time, does the community want that and how do they feel about it? And how were they engaged in this process? And, um, you know, what are the reasons why they do and don't want trees? Um, so we've been doing some canvassing there. Um, and, uh, knocking on doors and things like that. Um, but that's still ongoing. So we don't have a ton of results from that yet. Um, but, uh, that's, that, that will probably be written up and, and published shortly. Um, and then the final aspect of that project is this mapping exercise where we're looking at, um, where, where the trees have been planted and how the demographics have shifted. Um, just to see our, you know, our people being forced to move as a result of this tree planting exercise, you know, is the neighborhood becoming more popular, desirable, um, and then people, you know, being forced to leave, um, as well as things like, um, you know, who are the demographics of the people who accept trees versus deny trees. Right, right, right. Well, there's a lot of geography to that study. And so do they put out with, you know, with planting these new trees, 
and monitoring air quality are they putting out like localized air quality monitoring stations near these trees so they kind of because there's you know air quality changes throughout a city in different parts of the city mm -hmm. yeah i don't know the the details of that part of the project but uh, i think what they're doing is um they have instruments of some kind that measure air particulates and i think they're just going out and getting periodic measurements um i'm not sure of the details on that but it's an okay. interesting idea for sure. Yeah, and it, 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 is is Chris Sikowski part of that project? No, that's it's people from the med school. Oh. So they're okay. yeah, they're not uh, they're not parks people. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, because Chris did. Uh, I think his dissertation was on air quality in uh, Salt Lake City, um, and I think he actually just put out a notice for uh, he's looking for some graduate students to help him with some of that research, uh, which that's always really awesome research that he mm -hmm. does. Um, okay, well, that's two awesome projects that you're doing, Lauren. My gosh, uh, you got a third one? I have a few more. <laughs> nice, you're busy. <laughs> I am, yeah, probably too busy. Um, yeah, my, my other projects are related to um, climate change. So I, that's another big area of my research is looking at how cities are adapting to climate change and whether or not that's gonna have implications for uh, vulnerable people in those cities. Um, and so those are really long-term projects and I'm at the very beginning stages of those projects. Um, but what we're looking at is, um, currently we're looking at climate adaptation plans. So these are like a blueprint for a city's plan to adapt to climate change. They contain information about how the city will expand their bus fleet to be electric and how they'll, um, incentivize businesses to put green roofs on their buildings or, um, we're going to increase the energy efficiency of all publicly owned buildings by 2030, or um, we'll expand bicycle routes and we'll build new parks and rain gardens and um, things like that. And so these documents are, they're not policies necessarily in terms of the sense that they will actively be implemented. Um, some of them are binding so the city is saying we will do these things and we've set aside money for it and some of the cities are saying these are things we'd like to do and we don't know whether or not we'll be able to do them okay. um uh so it, it depends on the city how serious they are about the plan but um the the thing that we're looking at is are they prioritizing putting this climate adaptation infrastructure in the most vulnerable parts of the city so the the areas of the highest concentration of poverty the um areas with the most sort of racial and ethnic minorities, um, the areas with the most elderly folks, um, areas that experience the, the hottest temperatures um, or the most flooding or whatever impact climate change is going to have, um, certain communities will feel it more than others. So how are they prioritizing um, those groups of people? Um, and that's, that's at the very beginning stages. Um, uh, we're doing some data collection in Tulsa over the summer, and we're going to be interviewing people um, and asking them, you know, when when Tulsa was making its climate adaptation plan, did anyone ask you about it? Do you see yourself and your values and your preferences anywhere in that document? Um, and then also asking them, is your street hot in the summer? Um, do you have enough shade? Do you have access to air conditioning? Um, does your street flood when it rains? things like that. 
um, just to see whether or not it lines up with what the city says is their priority. So um, those projects are are just getting started, but they're they're pretty exciting to me. Um, yeah, I think so too, and I, I think it's great that uh, it's not just approaching cities. There's this homogenous layout. Like there's so much heterogeneity within the communities and the layout of a city. And I love that it's taken into consideration that heterogeneity that exists across every city. Um, and I'm curious to see the results of it. I think that that sounds like there's probably um, some transferability between strategies, but there also is probably city and community specific strategies too that may not transfer over to other um, cities and communities. Um, so I think the results of that are gonna be really cool. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I just, I gave a talk about that study. Um, well, those two studies to, um, Virginia Tech a couple weeks ago and got so many questions about it. Um, and so I think I'm taking that as a sign that it's an interesting project. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Well, uh, I want to hear some more about your projects. I want to ask you real quick. Are you, do you got, just because you mentioned presentations, um, do you have any conferences on the, for doc on your calendar for 2023 that you'll be presenting some of this at? I have both of my grad students presenting work on the climate adaptation plans at AAG in a couple weeks. Nice. Um, so that's the American Association of Geographers. Um, and then I submitted something to IASNR, um, and I can't remember if it was accepted or not. But uh, yeah, there's a couple things. Yeah, and AAG, um, I've been to that conference once before. I had a fantastic time. I went to it when it was in Washington, D.C. I think it was April of 2019. Um, and is it in Denver this year? It is. Okay. Well, that'll be fantastic. And I hope that you do get your abstract accepted at IASNR because that's going to be in Portland, Maine. And, uh, you know, maybe we, I'm going to be there so we can meet in person, which would be nice too. That would be nice. <laughs> okay. So let's hear some more about, um, some of your projects going on. I love hearing other sciences projects, what they're doing. And it, 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 it blows my mind that we have this field of like, Hey, parks and recreation, but there's so many research niches filled within there. And I just love hearing about all the different stuff that, uh, our colleagues are up to. Yeah. Um, it's, I, so I have one project that is, I've had the hardest time getting it funded in the past couple of years. I swear we're going to do it someday, but we haven't, we've been only dreaming about it so far, but it is probably the one project that builds the most clearly on my past work on gentrification. Um, but I have a colleague, um, Dr. Sonia Wilhelm Stannis at the University of Missouri. Um, and she and I have been working on this, developing this project. We, we have some pilot data, but what we're trying to do is look at climate adaptation and gentrification and health equity. And so this builds really nicely on past work that she and I have both done on green gentrification, um, which if listeners are unaware, um, is the idea that when a city or a developer or a combination of the two um, builds something like a park or a um, waterfront greenway or a new community center or um, any any amount of green space that that provides an immediate amenity to an area that that might make the area more desirable and so then property values and rents rise sharply really quickly and people might no longer be able to afford where they live depending on 
whether or not they are taxed annually and they own their home or whether or not they're a renter and suddenly their rent rises sharply. And so then there's a lot of displacement. And what's happened with um, gentrification is that this most poignantly affects low income and communities of color. And so the people who are the, the most in need of an amenity like a park or a green space or a community center um, end up having to move. And so then suddenly the, the park, the waterfront greenway, the community center, the climate adaptation infrastructure, whatever it is, ends up only serving the people who have always historically benefited from those things. Um, even if the intentions were, oh, this is going to be a great thing for these people who live here now, um, without some sort of protection against rising rents or or um, or eviction or things like that, then suddenly those people have to move because they can't afford to live there anymore, or they want to move because suddenly the neighborhood changes so much around them that there's nothing there's nothing left for them there. They don't know their neighbors anymore. The businesses that they used to go to have left. Um, and so all of their culture has also been displaced. And so gentrification is something that I've studied for several years. And, um, and yeah, and it's something that we are thinking will probably happen as cities adapt to climate change, um, because they're going to be doing things like building parks and green spaces and rain gardens and green roofs and all of that stuff is more expensive. And so that's a value added product. Um, so a new building and a new housing complex, whatever it is, if it's more sustainable, more energy efficient, um, that's currently more expensive to build. And so people are going to charge more to rent space there. Um, and so we're probably going to see a lot of the same stuff that we've seen in the past uh, with, this sort, with this sort of investment. Um, and at the same time, though, when you adapt to climate change, if you do it in an equitable fashion, you could um, prevent some of the really harmful health effects from climate change, like heat stress, heat related illnesses, asthma, um, other air quality related illnesses um, and things like that. So so that's sort of the health angle is we have this enormous potential to benefit people's health with adapting to climate change. And so if we do it in an equitable fashion, then we can we can do good by people who have been marginalized. Um, we just have to be very careful about it. So you're talking about being able to boost health, but preventing the gentrification. The, the Exactly. The, yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Oh man. Gentrification is a complex topic. Uh, and I know it's researched from a lot, a lot of angles and it's, it's great that you're bringing it into your research because that displacement of people away from um, some of those amenities um, away from their culture, away from, the restaurants and businesses that they uh, were patrons at, like that is life altering. And I could see that being a real big struggle, especially for those who don't own a house, but are renters. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's, it, it truly is a neighborhood transformation. I mean, that's how I always define it in my work is that it's a, it's a neighborhood transformation that happens from an influx of capital into an area. So that's, um, individual people flipping homes. It's uh, developers building new housing that's you know more luxury than what existed before. That's cities purposefully inviting different kinds of businesses, um, changing their zoning laws to allow different types of businesses. Um, 
it's cities incentivizing certain types of investment in um, bicycling infrastructure, new bus stops, um, vegetation, all kinds of things. So an influx of capital of, of a variety of types um, and subsequent displacement of people who can no longer afford to live there or who have been pushed out culturally. Um, it's the culture of a neighborhood can so quickly change that people who used to call that home and used to wave to their neighbors as they walk down the street are now um, the subject of police calls. Yep. Yep. I can see that happening for sure. Um, so that's, that's definitely some good research that you're doing. Thank you. Okay. So that's, um, going through your research. One of the things that I was thinking about as you described the projects that you're working on is I was thinking about the decision-making processes. Um, and a lot of times decisions are made, um, by people that are not the most vulnerable and are not impacted the most by the decisions. And so how is it that people that are more vulnerable and most impacted by the decision-making can help with that decision-making process? How can they get in there and be a part of that? Yeah, this is probably the, the trickiest piece of the whole, of the whole um, effort of, of environmental justice work is procedurally, how do we make things more equitable? Um, and there's a lot of different ways that people have proposed doing this um, because the traditional, like if you're an urban planner, the traditional um, protocol is you hold town hall meetings, you invite neighbors to design charrettes, you have a public comment period where people can submit stuff on their website, you have listening sessions, whatever it is. But those are the most inclusive to the people who, first of all, feel like they belong at an urban planning meeting um, and who have the time and capacity to get there. Um, and so there's a big push to just improve those basic types of community engagement. So if you're going to do a town hall, for example, have several of them at different times of day for people who work different types of shifts, um, provide childcare, provide meals, um, provide them along common transportation routes like near bus stops or, um, or in churches or other, other areas that feel a little bit more um, welcoming in like community spaces. So that's, that's sort of on the basic end of things that we're already doing. How do we make them more inclusive? Uh, and then you can go all the way along the spectrum to completely shifting who has power in a community. Um, and so a lot of times decisions are made just by committees that exist. So a city council, um, will have, you know, a subcommittee on whatever local issue. And so they'll just make decisions based on that. And, you know, who, who gets hired to be on city council are the people who have the most political savvy, can raise the most money, things like that. Um, and so that can be really tricky if decisions are just made by committees on the government. Um, and then there's also the sort of like back room dealing that happens with like developers and mayoral administrations and things. And I won't get into all of that because that can get really shady really quick. Um, but for, for people who are making a genuine effort at um, making more inclusive decision-making, a lot of times what's happening is you just have to have a, a wider variety of engagement methods. So I mentioned the, uh, the nonprofits earlier that we talked about with the tree planting. Um, 
They have individual Facebook groups for different areas of the city. Um, and so they have, you know, this neighborhood um, Facebook group, you know, they'll pop in and, and, and talk to people there. They'll go to churches um, because churches are basically like community centers for a lot of neighborhoods. Um, that's where a lot of socializing happens. That's where people know each other um, or um, neighborhood associations. Um, the people that in Philadelphia, for example, the ones that put on block parties, that's where you would go is you would go to a, a Philadelphia block party um, or door knocking, just simple old school uh, door to door canvassing um, uh, school groups, youth programs, um, going to senior centers. There's a lot of different things that you can do. And the problem is that all of this stuff costs money. And um, so it's so much easier for a city to do stuff that is free or cheap than it is to spend a little bit more money to do the more equitable thing. Um, and that's the trickiest part of all of this is that we probably just don't have enough money to be as inclusive as we need to be. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's really tricky. And so what some people are trying to get at is um, shifting who, who are the people who have power in a community? And so that's making sure that people have the right to vote and are not disenfranchised. It's um, hiring people for certain positions that come from certain communities um, so that the people who are making decisions are the ones whose voices are represented um, in those areas. Um, and, you know, back, back to something that you and I talked about, um, who, who is trained, um, to, to, to be qualified for the jobs where people are making decisions. Um, so when we hire city planners, when we hire, um, people in the, you know, mayor's office, when we hire, um, community liaisons, like who are the people that we're hiring and do they represent the best interests of people that will be affected by a decision? Um, so it's complex. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm glad that you pointed out the, the money aspect, you know, like it's going to take money and human resources say to go canvas uh, a community and knock on doors. Um, do you ever see, is it a wise decision, I guess, and um, to form maybe temporary advisory groups that are virtual and include leaders from these different communities, maybe a leader from the church, um, a leader from the schools, a leader from maybe some sports teams. Um, is, is that being done? Is that something that's a good idea? Yes. I think that's a great idea to, to find out who, who is the person from each of the various community pillars, who is the person that could be on a community advisory board, for example. Um, so one, one example I'm thinking of right now is, um, is in Philadelphia, there's a, um, there's a public space called Bartram's Garden and it's in Southwest Philly, which is historically a very black and very poor neighborhood, uh, in, in Philadelphia. And so Bartram's Garden is historically a very older, very wealthy, very white, um, sort of user base because it's a botanical garden and they have this historical house where John Bartram used to do his 
um, you know, being a botanist. And um, so his like family a long time ago donated this land. And so it's been a public park for a really long time, but nobody knows that it exists and they don't know that it's public because it's this sort of snobby looking old botanical garden with a historic house. Um, but in recent years, um, maybe the last decade or so, um, they've started trying to be more of a community amenity. Um, and so they've done that through very, very strategic hiring. Um, and so their executive director is a woman of color and they have all of these people on their leadership staff that, um, are, that care about social justice and that have the interest of, of the people of Southwest Philly at heart. Um, or they've been doing a lot of hiring from Southwest Philly itself. Um, and what they have is a, um, they have a community liaison that is, um, a member of their board. I think I, don't want to speak out of turn, but I'm pretty sure that's how it works. And then they make a lot of their decisions using their community advisory board. And so that's people who live in the public housing project that is right next door mm. or people who live in the other neighborhoods um, that are really close to Bartram's garden. Um, and so they've been doing lots of really, really intentional engagement and co-decision making. And what's happened is now at Bartram's Garden, it's no longer this old historical botanical garden that only appeals to like older white ladies who garden. Now they have an urban farm that grows food from the African diaspora. They have a community garden and the plots that, that community members can rent are you know given priority if you live in Southwest Philly. Um, they have youth programs. They hire interns every year. Um, they do, um, they opened like a fishing pier because there was a lot of sort of informal fishing that was happening. So they finally just built a pier for the, for the, um, it was a lot of older black gentlemen from the area who liked to fish, um, for, for food, unfortunately, because the, the, the river is so polluted, but, um, and they have like boating programs. So like, a lot of you know, kids from the area go there to boat in the summer and cool down. Um, so they've done like a tremendous job of becoming a community asset and um, they get a lot of private donations. And so I think the, what's made them successful is that they have a really effective um, development manager does a lot of fundraising and, and um, engagement with, with their donors and things. Um, so, I, I just wish every park that was in a vulnerable area could be as engaged um, as Bartram's Garden is uh, with their community. Um, but they have the privilege of of the the John Bartram Foundation or whatever it is that where they get a lot of donations from. So I think that they're sort of the best shining example of what I've seen um, for co-decision making with the community. Yeah, what a wonderful transformation it went through. Um, and I, I think, you know, like that was a nice that you underscored the fundraising component. I'm on a board of a local um, park here. It's called Mount Mitchell Heritage Prairie Park. And it's, it's a wonderful place. It's, it's kind of small. It's about 165 acres, but it's got um, rich indigenous heritage. It's got rich um, heritage with the Underground Railroad. Um, and that's something that went on through the area. So there's a lot of just um, storytelling to be told and whatnot. Um, but like, we don't know how to do that. Like, we don't know which parts of the stories we should tell, how much of the stories we should tell. And so we often need to form um, these kind of temporary advisory committees, these advisory committees to point us in the right direction, 
Um, so for example, we want to put together a trail that has um, some different poetry that celebrates these different heritage components. And we're like, well, which poems do we pick? Which pieces of literature do we pick? And so we need advising on that. Um, so, and, but then also going back to the fundraising component, that's just nonstop. Even for this 165 acre park, we, we don't even have enough money to, right now it's completely a non, it's managed by a nonprofit. We do not have a paid employee, we do not have a paid manager. And we do not fundraise enough money to pay for employees to be there. And so we can't have certain amenities there that would need regular service, such as bathrooms or trash collection. Like it's, it's a pack it in, pack it out situation. We have no bathrooms. Um, and that fundraising component, hopefully it gets to a point where we can have paid employees, but that's still, we got a lot of progress to be made. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's they're, they're really lucky over there in Bartram's garden. If, yeah, if only every place could have that capacity. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, it was wonderful hearing about your research. I always love talking about it. As I said, I love hearing about what our colleagues are up to, but I wanted to hear more about Lauren. So as we started the, the episode, you talked about how much you love nature, being outside. And so what, what does Lauren like to do uh, with being outside? I did read that you've run, I think, seven marathons, which I thought was amazing. Uh, so I just want to hear about what, what, what do you love about nature? Oh, I do love running outside. Yeah. That's probably my top outdoor activity. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I was signed up for marathon number eight and then I got an injury. So I'm, I'm currently out of commission on the running bit, but I do love an outdoor walk. I, I am a huge appreciator of city parks and I have, you know, I have a walking loop in my neighborhood where I link together a couple different parks. Um, so I, I love just just walking in my neighborhood. I love running in my neighborhood. Um, and I've done several pretty awesome backpacking trips with my dad. Um, so he he's really the reason why I'm such a nature lover, because he got me hiking when I was little. Um, he got me backpacking as soon as I could carry a backpack. That's when we started backpacking together. So we did um, all of the Appalachian Trail that that exists in Georgia because I'm from the Atlanta area. So we did every segment of that piece of it. Um, we did a, a little bit of the AT in Tennessee as well. Um, I, we did Rocky Mountain National Park. We did Glacier National Park, Yellowstone, Grand Teton, um, Denali in Alaska. Um, and we did a whole bunch of the parks in Southern Utah, uh, like Arches, Canyonlands, um, Bryce Canyon, um, Zion. So I love a backpacking trip. Um, we were planning a trip to Patagonia and then COVID hit. And so we haven't been able to, and now he's got grand, now he's got grandkids. So everything's a lot more complicated, but, um, soon we'll make it down there and do an international trip. Um, so I love hiking. Um, Oklahoma turns out has some great hiking. I didn't expect that, but, um, there's some really beautiful state parks here. Um, what else do I do? Um, I used to commute by bike, um, before I was a professor and needed to have nice hair for class. Um, uh, but I still, I do still enjoy a, a nice bike ride. Um, what else do I do outside? I, um, I love just like working outside. So when it's a nice day, I'll take my laptop out to my backyard and, um, I have a bird feeder. Um, I garden, so I'm growing, um, okra, 
radishes and peas right now. Nice. Um, yeah, they just got wiped out by a frost overnight, probably. But oh, we um, got hit by snow last night. It's probably the same storm, huh? Yeah, yeah. It was incredibly windy and it got really, really cold. And so everything that I planted two weeks ago is probably dead now. No, but... <laughs> I love okra. Oh my gosh. So what do you do with your okra? Do you like? One place I've seen that I just love okra is in an Indian dish, like a curry, an okra curry, and it's so good. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds really good. I usually just fry it. I've got an air fryer, yes. so I just, yeah. I love air frying, too. Uh, I actually have an air fryer that recently is by Cursora, I think is the brand, and they had a recall on it. Do you see that? Oh, no. <laughs> I guess it, I, I still haven't recalled mine. Supposedly, like, you just send them three pictures, and you send them one picture of the power cord snipped and then they will just like they don't ask questions they'll just send you a new one and um i haven't even done that five second task yet to get the new one yet <laughs> but you too but gosh how cool is it though i i loved hearing about your dad taking you backpacking when you were young um i didn't I, I love backpacking myself and i didn't get into backpacking until my late 20s and it was transformative it was transformative i um i don't know i think like i don't find a better place to just escape, calm my mind, or feel the sensation of escape, have my mind calm, solitude. Um, even if it's solitude with a friend or family member, um, backpacking is just my love and joy. Um, I do come from running a, uh, a background of being a runner myself, but backpacking is like the top for me. And I just, I love backpacking. So I wish, uh, that's cool that you got started pretty young. Yeah, I, I was 12 or 13, the first backpacking trip I ever went on. And I had my dad's old um external uh yes. what do you call it with like the the metal frame on the outside yeah and and like his his mom had sewed it herself so like to close it you had to just pull these like little ropes that she had found in her garage and so it was it was wacky but i loved that thing and when we finally had to retire it i was so sad um so i got started real young um but there's really nothing better than waking up outside just the best i agree i agree well lauren it has been wonderful to have you on all bodies outside and i am so grateful that you came on here to share about your research and all the great stuff you're up to and i'm looking forward to seeing your publications and hopefully a presentation in portland maine in june yes hopefully thank you so much for having me you're welcome okay i'm going to throw on that outro music and we'll call it an episode <laughs>